This week takes us to Pasadena, Texas, where a young mother makes a murder-suicide pact with her own children. Only, she doesn't hold up her end of the bargain. This is episode 59 of Texas 1031. Hey everyone, this is Hannah, this is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. This week, I'm going to tell you the story of the murder of two young brothers, Calvin and Conrad Williams. So picture it, Pasadena, Texas, 1955. We kind of have an oldie. There is a lot of background before we get into the murders, but it helps set the scene, so who cares? Again, like last week, I believe, um, I am doing laundry yet again, and I think it might rain, so it's going to be really, it's going to sound great. Perfect. Anyways, let's get into it. So originally from Indiana, 28-year-old Anne Williams had most recently been living in a trailer park in Pasadena, Texas, with her two young sons, 9-year-old Calvin and 8-year-old Conrad, raising them more or less as a single mother. Annie, as she was commonly called, was born in 1922 and was the third of four children. Annie grew up with a mechanical engineer for a father, but he passed away when she was only 11. In somewhat typical fashion, by 1940, Annie had been married and divorced. Many couples were rushing to get married in the early 40s due to the war, but divorce rates soared around 1947 once they realized they had married for convenience and security instead of love or compatibility. I suppose Annie was a little bit ahead of the curve on that statistic, but nonetheless, a year later in 1941, when she was only 19, Annie graduated high school with honors in Smithville, Tennessee. Despite her desire to attend business school and countless recommendations from her teachers, Annie just couldn't afford to go to college. Instead of getting a secondary education, Annie had to settle for working in a pants factory after graduation. Soon after that job, she began working at a local Piggly Wiggly grocery store where she quickly rose to the ranks of manager in training. She ended up quitting that job after she said, quote, the manager kept bothering me, end quote. Uh, please keep all these things in mind as we go through her life and her later crimes as well, okay? Uh, for the next year and a half, she worked for the Ford Motor Company building B-24 bombers for World War II. Uh, it's here that she met her uh, future husband, Hoyt Williams, who was attending an Air Force school near the Ford plant. Not long after meeting on February 19, 1945, 26-year-old Hoyt and 22-year-old Annie would be married in Tampa, Florida. Over the next couple years, the couple would move several times to different military bases that Hoyt was working at. The base ranged from Denver, Nashville, West Palm Beach, and Manchester, New Hampshire. Literally all those places sound super fun, so she can't complain in my opinion. The couple's first child, Calvin, would be born in Manchester, New Hampshire on October 22nd, 1945. A good old Libra. Um, well, technically, I guess like a Libra cusp with uh, Scorpio, but still. Two weeks after the birth of Calvin, Hoyt went AWOL. Annie, Hoyt, and Calvin made their way back to Smithville, Tennessee, where Annie's mother still lived. 
Several months later, on August 10, 1946, FBI agents and state police went to arrest Hoyt for desertion of his military post. This is, uh, I don't know, pretty bold, in my opinion. At the time, Annie was pregnant with their second child, Conrad, when all of the FBI and the state police show up. This didn't stop her from firing 50 shots at the officers attempting to put her husband in custody. Hoyt would serve 15 months for going AWOL and was released in February of 1947. Annie wasn't charged with any crime related to her shooting the officers. I guess it was the old, you know, moody pregnant woman defense, huh? I I feel like her shooting the officers is actually worse than Hoyt going AWOL. That's just crazy. This family's life just gets better and better uh, because in September of 1950, Hoyt Williams would be charged with reckless flying after crashing his stunt plane into several vehicles and injuring 15 people at a fucking plane show. Hoyt himself would also be injured in the crash, suffering from a fractured skull, among other less serious injuries. So, you know, essentially this family is cursed. Um, After Hoyt recovered from the accident, he would move Annie, Calvin, and Conrad from place to place every two to six weeks as he took a job building irrigation wells as a welder. That's, you know, uh, that's who you really want welding all your shit. The guy with the fucking fractured skull and a pension for abandoning his responsibilities. All of this travel really began taking a toll on Annie and her physical health. According to her, at least, the cesarean section she had during the birth of Conrad caused her to have residual pain and discomfort, primarily at night when she was trying to sleep. On top of all of the moving the family was having to do in concert with her physical pain, Annie was really testing her limits. She began to more or less abuse the prescription medication known as Secanol, a sleeping pill she had purchased in Mexico. She later claimed she never actually became addicted to the medication, but it will be very obvious later on that that was a lie. Back in the 1950s and the 1960s, these pills were known as reds or red devils and were commonly used for anxiety relief, insomnia, and mild euphoria if used recreationally. The pills were actually a part of the plot of the film Valley of the Dolls, which I never saw, but I think that's a fun fact. Finally, after months of travel for Hoyt's job, in the summer of 1954, the family moved back into a trailer in Galveston, Texas. However, just a few months later, the FBI was back at the Williams door arresting Hoyt for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines in West Virginia four years earlier. Uh, This guy can't either catch a break or is just a dumbass, probably both, but regardless, Hoyt was sentenced to federal prison to serve out a three-year sentence in Atlanta, Georgia. I don't know why the crime took place four years ago, which is kind of like, can we move on from it now? Also, it happened in West Virginia. Why are they putting him in Atlanta? I I don't know. Maybe it's the closest federal prison to West Virginia. Who knows? From here, Annie moved yet again to another trailer home. This woman, I'm telling you now, she moves so much in this entire episode. It's kind of crazy. This time, she moves into uh, Pasadena, Texas. Sorry. According to reports, Annie evidently had several arguments and disagreements with her husband, through their correspondence over his time in prison. She later admitted to investigators that her marriage was unhealthy and she was very unhappy. For the nine years leading up to his incarceration in Georgia, she had been completely miserable. Hoyt would write her letters blaming her for the family's situation and problems and accused her of being a terrible wife and mother. 
All of this negativity and judgment was a huge trigger for Annie, and this is when everything begins to get dark. During this time, Annie decided she was sick of moving, sick of her marriage, sick of living, really. She later explained that she wanted to take her kids and just disappear from it all. So what does she do? You guessed it. She moves yet again. Well, sort of. Annie decided to go to Houston and rent an apartment, which if you're familiar with the Houston area, Pasadena and Houston aren't too far from each other in the grand scheme of things. So she goes and rents this apartment in town on Clay Street. I used to work over there, and I'm, I'm sure the apartment building she lived in isn't even there anymore, but still kind of spooky. She paid a month's rent of, get this, okay, 1955 prices here, $50 in advance for this place on Sunday, February 13th, 1955. Again, keep this in mind because to me, this is a kind of a preemptive move of some kind even before this last clump of shit-talking letters Hoyt sends her to really push her over the edge. So so like I said, a few, few days passed and Annie received more hateful letters in the mail from Hoyt. And this is finally when Annie Williams claims she made herself a promise. And that was that she was going to kill her two sons and then kill herself. At 8 p.m. on February 16th, 1955, Annie began to put her plan into action. Giving her time to decompress from the bitter messages received by her husband and time to gather her thoughts and, let's be real, probably time to plan their murders, Annie told Calvin and Conrad that they could go to the movies that evening. Unfortunately, however, when the brothers got home, Annie told them that she had prepared something for them to take for the colds the two boys had. The children insisted they felt fine and weren't sick, but their mother forced them to take what we now was an overdose of the, um, the second all sleeping pills. This is the kind of common narrative seen in most of the reporting and not saying that she didn't poison Calvin and Conrad, which is why I am letting you know that that was a good possibility, but conflicting information would later be found by the medical examiner. The doctor who performed the siblings' autopsies would be able to determine that in addition to this alleged overdose, the boys had major skull fractures. Both children appeared to be bludgeoned to death. So fast forwarding uh, a little bit, um, just for storytelling's sake, but soon after she murders her children, Annie Williams would be caught and confesses everything to a Texas Ranger and a Harris County Sheriff's deputy. I will now go over her confession and the details of the murder that she provided. Uh, by the way, she never mentions Calvin or Conrad by name the entire time during her questioning and confession. So that's nice. Annie told the ranger and deputy that the boys were lying in their beds. She said the oldest was lying on his stomach, the youngest on his back. She explained at that point that she couldn't truly tell if the boys were dead yet, this is supposedly after she gave them the second all cocktail. So to be sure, she wrapped their necks with bandanas and nailed the ends of the cloth to the boards of the beds beneath the kids' bodies to hold them there. This is just so bizarre, okay? I've never heard of anyone doing this before. I don't know how she really came up with it. I, I don't know. This is a first. She said she twisted the nail, because she nailed the bandana in, right? She twisted the nails, causing the fabric to tighten more and more with each twist, like basically a, uh, a garrote system, essentially. 
Doing this more or less strangled the children in an effort to ensure that they were completely dead. This is when Annie conveniently decided that she wasn't ready to die and went back on the plan of her own suicide. Once Annie believed that Calvin and Conrad were dead, she transported the boys in the backseat of her Cadillac and carried them one by one into her new apartment in Houston to sort out a way to dispose of their corpses. I don't know why she did this. I would have ha- assumed it would have been easier to dispose of the bodies out in, you know, what was pretty rural Pasadena rather than, you know, big city Houston. I think it is because she's closer to resources, at least based on the moves that she makes after this. But still, she is just so chill and unorganized. <laughs> it's kind of insane. Usually the unorganized ones, you know, are frantic and chaotic, but she is so loaded up on second all this entire time. So who knows? I'm not sure how her brain is operating. Anyways, Annie continues her confession by telling investigators that she placed the boy's bodies in the apartment's bathtub. She said both bodies weren't incredibly limp or stiff at this point, and they still had their t-shirts and jeans on. However, after getting situated, she proceeds to remove the boy's clothing and turns on the water. According to her, this is when she got the idea to cover them in a dissolving solution to help accelerate the process of decomposition. Annie waited for the sun to come up and the stores to open, and she headed back to Pasadena. She went shopping for some lime at a feed store and brought the 10-pound bag of lime back to the apartment in town and poured it over the bodies. Annie soon realized that the lime wasn't dissolving whatsoever, so she went to another store and purchased a can of lye. After pouring this over the bodies as well, she says she just went to bed and hoped the dissolving would begin overnight. Yeah. Annie woke up Saturday morning around 11 a.m. to an awful smell in the apartment. No shit. She checked the bathtub and yet again realized the lime and the lye were not making any progress on dissolving the bodies. Worried that the foul odor would alert neighbors of something amiss, Annie decided she needed to dismember her children. She went shopping for a third time, this time to a hardware store, and purchased plastic sheeting. She cut the sheeting into smaller plastic bags to wrap her son's body parts in. Her plan was to refrigerate the limbs to diffuse the odor for a bit and give her some more time to devise a better plan. Annie began dismembering Calvin and Conrad early Sunday morning, February 20th. She said that she tried to use a butcher knife but ended up using two razor blades after finding the knife was too dull for the job. This took her about two to three hours, but in the end, her children had been successfully cut apart, wrapped individually, and stored in the apartment's refrigerator. I have some really good pictures of this entire scenario of her, of she and her her trailer, the refrigerator. Um, She's a piece of shit, but I have good pictures, surprisingly. In 1955, there's great photos. Annie said that she took another handful of her handy uh, secondol pills and went to sleep again until Monday morning. When she woke up, she could still smell something strong and awful coming from the kitchen. She realized she needed to get rid of her children's body parts once and for all. Again, this is just so odd, but for some reason, (laughs) she figured 
that purchasing a new vehicle to transport Calvin and Conrad's remains was a smart move. So she heads down to Fannin Street. Everyone in Houston fucking knows where Fannin Street is. And buys a 1948 Studebaker. She told the ranger and deputy that she put $30 down and would owe a little over $200 for the car after that. Um, Mind-blowing price and mind-blowing that she thought any of that information was relevant or necessary to the deputy or the ranger. But regardless, she said that she gave the car salesman a fake name, which was Dana Linden, but she gave her correct Clay Street address when buying the car. The salesman told her she could pay off the car by giving him $10 a week. Deal of the fucking century. After this, Annie will go shopping for, I guess, the the fifth time, if you include her um, buying the car. And she bought more plastic bags, sheets, tweezers, face powder, can opener, and the suitcase. I want to stop and analyze this list of shit she bought really fast, okay? So... Plastic bags, plastic sheets, and even a suitcase, okay? Those could be items she needs to continue the dismemberment and transportation of the bodies. But what about the face powder, tweezers, and can opener? Was she eating anytime soon that she needed a can opener for? Was she doing her makeup anytime soon? Traveling anytime soon? To be able to remember, oh yeah, my brows are getting bushy as fuck and I need more powder... In the midst of carving up your dead children is a really bad look, girl. Like, was she planning on skipping town with any of these items or was she just picking up some essentials for her new apartment? It's it's kind of hard to tell. I just thought it was a bizarre list. Um, So she returned to the apartment and would go to sleep once again. This woman, all she does is chop up kids and sleep. However, before heading to bed, you guys, um, this is also a first. Annie drinks a glass of fucking buttermilk. And listens to the radio for a while. I don't know. I feel like that might be creepier and nastier than you dismembering your fucking eight and nine-year-old children. But was buttermilk a thing? I don't know. Like, was it like a silent generation special treat because everything was so scarce during the war or whatever? But I don't know. What about old, like, 2%, you know? Come on, girl. 2%'s good. I actually read a little bit about this later because I was so curious, but I still don't really get it. So if you know, let me know. Okay, buttermilk in the 40s. Was it a thing? Anyways, after her scandalous evening of sour milk and late night radio, the next morning, Annie would load the four plastic packages into her new car. Four packages, y'all. That just shows you how small these kids really were, you know? Anyways, she throws the plastic packs into her trunk and heads to Algoa, Texas, Annie arrives at Morris Johnson's home in Algoa requesting his assistance. I actually had to look up where Algoa was because I had never heard of it. So Algoa is a tiny unincorporated town in Galveston County. It is so small that in 2010, or excuse me, in the 2010 census, they didn't even participate. So, and in 2000, there were only 125 people. So I, I can only imagine the population back in 1955. It was probably just Morris Johnson. According to the online blog Galveston Crime Scene, Morris Johnson, who was a mechanic, had met the young mother and her husband of 10 years at that time, Hoyt, when he had worked on their car the previous fall. When Annie learned that Morris's wife was sick, she stayed with the woman for three days, tenderly nursing her back to health. Despite this, the two really were only acquaintances at best, but Annie knew she could rely on Morris to help her out if she needed. She told Morris that her deep freezer had finally given out 
and she needed to get rid of some spoiled venison meat because the deer had been shot illegally out of season. Um, that's her excuse. That that's a I mean, that's kind of good, honestly. Maybe there was something in the buttermilk. I don't know. This part is a little rough, you guys, so you have been warned, okay? Annie backs her car into an open field on the Johnson's property in preparation for the disposal of the packages. The first package contained the boys' lower legs with their feet still attached, along with their forearms, arms, and hands. The second package contained miscellaneous clothing from Annie that she had been wearing the night she killed her children, as well as the boys' t-shirts and blue jeans that they were wearing when they were murdered. The second package also contained their upper legs having been cut at the hips and knees and wrapped in pages of the Houston Chronicle. The third bundle contained the head and torso of Calvin, still obviously soaked in lye and lime. The left side of his head and jaw showed severe trauma, confirming the medical examiner's later observation that the boys had been beaten to death. The final package contained the head and torso of Conrad. His remains were also fractured and swollen like his brother's. Mrs. Johnson, who had tagged along to assist in the dumping, tossed three of the four packages into a ditch unaware of their contents. As she reached for the last package, Annie tells her, oh, by the way, in an addition to, you know, the fucking deer meat, this one also has a bunch of my bloody menstrual pads in it, so I'll get it. Don't worry. What? Annie grabs it herself and places it into the ditch. Morris assured Annie that he would go and cover the packages later once he finished up some work back at his shop. So there are all these packages are just lying in an uncovered ditch at this point. Um, I don't know. This is, this is so hardcore cringy to me. I hate it when people like do shit for me, like dishes or cleaning or whatever. But my biggest annoyance in this situation, because of my hatred for people assisting me and stuff, is that she literally let Mrs. Johnson almost do the entire job. Like how fucking rude. Carry your own shit. Also, I know she's obviously lying um, because we know what happens, but why didn't anyone call her out on the menstrual pad thing? Like who hoards used pads and waits to throw them out? She's just so annoying. Like I fucking hate her so much. <laughs> anyway, uh, while driving Mrs. Johnson back to her home at the mechanic shop and wrecking lot, Annie said she was hungry and essentially invited herself in for dinner. Even more cringe. During the meal, Morris starts making casual conversation with Annie, asking her about Hoyt and her kids, you know, normal dinner table talk. She told Morris that Hoyt was working out in Florida and made no mention that he was actually in prison in Georgia. And she said Calvin and Conrad were at home watching TV shows on their brand new television set, which, you know, if she hadn't chopped up her kids, that could have been true. She did like to buy new shit all the time. So I'll give her like a fucking half a point for honesty. After dinner, Annie became a little impatient. She kept insisting that the group return to bury the wrapped bundles. She claimed that she was worried that dogs might sniff out the meat and tear open the packages, spreading the contents all over the neighborhood. Mrs. Johnson, not wanting to go back out to the field and ride in the putrid car and touch the rancid packages, did what anyone would do. She volunteered her two grandsons to assist them with shovels and ensure the packages got completely covered and buried. As a thank you for his help in burying Calvin and Conrad's remains, Annie drove the eldest grandson, Clayton, who was 19, to a movie theater nearby in Alvin. 
When the movie ended, Clayton walked out of the theater around 9 p.m. to see a story on the front of the Houston Press newspaper. It stated that Annie Williams and her children had been reported missing from Pasadena five days earlier, and the authorities were searching for them. One of Annie's fellow employees at the Five and Dime store she worked at had reported her missing after she hadn't shown up for work. Strangely, however, Annie had given this employee a letter with instructions to open it if anything ever happened to her. Inside the letter, the coworker and friend found a blank check with a note to look after the boys along with keys to her Cadillac and her trailer. I'd like to know how long ago Annie gave this woman the note and the blank check because if it was recently, then it kind of leads me to think that maybe Annie wanted to be caught in some shape or form. But if it was a while ago, then maybe she really was planning on killing herself or or running away from her life. Either way, the friend kind of misunderstood and blew Annie's cover because the police were on the move trying to locate she and her children. Clayton said when he read the story about Annie supposedly being missing, he put two and two together and had a sinking feeling about what was really in the packages. After reading the Houston Press cover story, Clayton and his friend drove back to the ditch where he had buried the packages just a few hours earlier. The two young men dug up the bundles and shined their flashlights on the now open chunks of wrapped plastic. The friends discovered Calvin and Conrad's arms and legs and immediately called the police. At least someone has a conscience, you know? 4 a.m. on Wednesday, February 23, 1955, the Harris County Sheriff's Office broke down the doors at Annie Williams' apartment. It was noted in reports that her apartment had countless books and magazines about astrology, as well as a loaded pistol. I think this is a little character assassination-ish and honestly kind of a personal attack on me because I love astrology and I have a loaded gun in my house, so fuck off. Um, this is, here, here's some real character assassination right here. Um, but not really, it's a little more legitimate than a a astrology magazine. So it came to light that Annie's eldest brother told police he hadn't heard from her in over 16 years, except for a phone call shortly before she was arrested. He told newspapers he didn't have anything to do with her or what she did with her sons. Fair enough. Annie's sister, on the other hand, was a bit more sympathetic. She told the press that she couldn't understand why or what would lead Annie to do something like this, but that she was there to to support her in any way that she could. However, once again in opposition, Annie's younger brother remembers her being selfish and self-centered as a child and teen, and he also didn't want anything to do with her. So there's that. Hoyt, like Annie's sister, had her back. He would claim that Annie couldn't have been responsible for whatever she confessed to and no no matter what she told police. Even from prison, he said that he wanted to stand by her and assist her in any way possible. It was painfully obvious that Annie didn't show any remorse and she more or less said that what was done was done and she couldn't take it back. She told investigators to, quote, take her to the electric chair. I don't care anymore now. End quote. Soon after her arrest, a reporter for the Baytown Sun went to the trailer in Pasadena, and in typical 1950s fashion, he was allowed inside to take pictures and document the interior of the trailer. So this is how we have all those fun photos. The boys' bikes were still leaning against the side of the home, their school bags and bunk beds left untouched in their room. 
Cowboy costumes and horror and mystery books for young readers filled their toy bin. The bandanas that had been used to choke the children had been cut up and flushed down the toilet, and the nail that was used to tighten the fabric around their necks still sat in a toolbox. A psychiatrist hired by Harris County to do an evaluation of Annie Williams found her to be legally sane to stand trial. In one of his interviews with her, the doctor asked her if she wanted to attend Calvin and Conrad's funeral, and she said, quote, No, people will only go to that funeral like people go to the zoo, to see something curious. I don't want to have anything to do with it, end quote. She probably would have been stoned to death if she had attended anyway, so it's probably for the best. Uh, Additionally, she told the psychiatrist her supposed reason for killing her children. She claimed that she murdered them because of the ridicule and bullying the boys received from others due to their father being a felon in prison. She also claimed that she didn't want the boys living in poverty like she did when she was a child. This is somewhat contradictory because, you know, she had a job. She was able to purchase the new car and rent the new apartment, as well as the fact that investigators said that a bank book found in her apartment showed she had $1,000 in a Pasadena, Texas bank. Furthermore, she wrote a blank check to her coworker so that, you know, like, what if that was actually real? Like, what if that coworker was like, yeah, $50,000, what was going to happen? I don't know. Interesting. To me, she's just a selfish cunt. I think that was the reason she killed her kids. I think that there were other things going on that could have amplified her wanting to murder her children. But overall, I think she was, like her brother said, a selfish and self-centered person. Nine months after her arrest on November 7th, 1955, Annie Williams' murder trial began. And on November 8th, she pled guilty to murdering and dismembering her children, Calvin and Conrad, while under the influence of Secanol. The trial went smoothly, and she was sentenced to spend not less than two years, but not more than life on each charge. She wouldn't be eligible for parole for at least 34 years. After her sentencing, Annie's story that she gave to investigators and to the court would change several times. She first claimed that her husband Hoyt had hired a hitman to kill her sons and forced her to bury their, you know, dismembered limbs. But during a prison interview, Annie would allege that an unknown man killed her children and forced her to bury their remains. Additionally, during her time in prison, Annie found religion and was even baptized under the Baptist faith. Yippee. The Texas prison system gave Annie a rehabilitative rating of fair to very poor. Doctors concluded that Annie was very shy and didn't want to answer any specific questions or delve into anything further than was necessary when being interviewed. Yeah, I mean, I bet. (laughs) The psychiatrist that had been conducting most of the pretrial interviews was Dr. C.A. Dwyer. He described Annie as having, quote, above average intelligence. She has poise and bearing, end quote. I tend to agree. Nine years into her prison sentence, Hoyt Williams was killed in yet another plane accident. This guy, I don't know. Uh, He was gunned down by fighter jets in the Egyptian Air Force in 1964. Super extravagantly elaborate. He had been making mysterious flight trips from Jordan to Libya for some time, and Egypt basically had enough of it. Searchers recovered his body from the Nile Delta just a few days later after his plane had crashed. Three months leading up to his death, Hoyt had remarried and his new wife was expecting a child. She kind of, she dodged a bullet, honestly. Let's be real. 16 years after Hoyt's death in 1980, Annie Williams would receive parole after serving 25 years of her sentence. This was nine years earlier than what was promised in court. 
She was moved to the Path Seekers Halfway House in Houston, Texas to reintegrate into society. At the time, the facility was located near the Astrodome. She was employed as uh, an office aide through her work release program, and she made almost 400 bucks a month doing the job. So, uh, this bitch, okay? In September of 1981, with less than nine months left to serve on parole, 59-year-old Annie Williams went on a dinner date with a man and never returned. During a few outings leading up to this night, Annie had withdrawn around $2,000 from her bank account, and staff later noticed that three wigs were missing from her bedroom at the halfway house. Annie Williams disappeared for the next 16 years. On March 26, 1997, Annie's case would eventually land on the desk of fugitive hunter Lewis Fawcett. DPS and state police filled Lewis in on what had occurred with Annie Williams in the years prior and informed him on the newest updates that there were. Lewis was told that Annie had recently renewed her driver's license in Garland, Texas, which is kind of a little suburb town city outside of Dallas. But unfortunately, this was the wrong Annie Williams. They even tracked down the woman, and she told them that this had actually happened to her several times before because she and the real Annie Williams, you know, obviously they have the same last name, but they also have the same birth date. So she had been confused as murderer Annie Williams multiple times in the past, which is not fun. (laughs) I can only imagine. Lewis decided to run the real Annie Williams social security number. The results showed a connection with another social security number that belonged to a male. Essentially, Lewis was able to conclude that Annie had been living off of a male's social security benefits after he had died. I don't know why anyone didn't attempt this to, you know, before in the 16 years she had been on the run, but whatever. In 1985, four years after Annie had skipped town and skipped out on parole, she married a man named James Allen in Riggins, Idaho. James had a bit of bad luck recently. He had just lost his wife, his eldest son, and his fucking leg. So by this point, Annie was going by her middle name of Lori, and people in the small Idaho town remembered her as being quiet and keeping to herself. Residents remember Lori being obsessed with walking her dog and minding her own business. I kind of like this Lori lady, way, way more than Annie. Unfortunately, the marriage was short-lived when James died of an apparent heart attack not long after they began their life together. James's sister questioned his death after finding out who he was really married to once Annie was finally located by U.S. Marshals and her past came to light. I mean, he was in his 60s and missing a leg. I think it's fucking possible that he had a naturally, you know, a heart attack or whatever naturally caused. But also Annie poisoned, strangled and bludgeoned and dismembered her own kids. So I could see it either way. Honestly, she should have had an autopsy or something. I don't know what to tell you, girl. When the U.S. Marshals located Annie, she was living in a, re- in a retirement center in Riggins, Idaho, and was living off of James's benefits like they had suspected. She was in poor health, Annie was going blind, and her mental health was in serious decline. I mean, I think it's been in decline for quite some time, but anyway. Despite this, the Marshals arrested and extradited the 75-year-old fugitive and brought her back to Texas. She claimed in later interviews that she fled the halfway house because the other residents kept calling her a baby killer. Hmm. So she got her feelings hurt over name calling and that caused her to evade law enforcement for 16 years. I don't know. I, I, she's, she's a terrible liar, but not really. She's kind of a good liar. So I don't know. 
Even after her extradition, when asked about her arrest, she continued to deny killing Calvin and Conrad, even into her older years. Now, however, she believed that they were abducted and killed by aliens rather than a hitman or an intruder, like she had said before. On December 6th, 2000, three years after she was brought back to Texas from Idaho, Annie was officially released by the Texas Parole Board. Twelve years after this, Annie would finally die in Central Texas in a nursing home at the age of 90. Good riddance, woman. When the murders occurred, the locals in Pasadena gathered donations and were able to gain enough funds to provide the boys with a proper burial. Calvin and Conrad Williams were laid to rest in the Oak Park Cemetery in Alvin, Texas. And that is the murder of Calvin and Conrad Williams. And a big fuck you to Annie Williams. Let's do questions and theories, yeah? I don't really have a lot of questions or theories about this case, but more so I have opinions. So um, I guess I do have one question. I wonder if modern psychiatrists could, if modern psychiatrists could have interviewed or treated Annie, would they have been able to determine if she was just more than, you know, shy, like the other doctor said? I think, you know, she was showing some clear cut behavioral signs of being quite narcissistic, manipulative and attention seeking. But, you know, that's just me. I think that Annie was also let me kind of, I don't know how to say this correctly, but she was kind of way before her time in the psychopathic or sociopathic sense that we are more familiar with today. Also being female, I think makes her potential diagnoses for this type of behavior or mental health problems even far more removed from the norm. The majority of people we saw killing and behaving like this were men in the 1970s and 1980s, not women in the 1950s. It was abnormal for not, for not just her you know, gender, but for her, the time period as well. Because let us not forget, she was you know, quite intelligent. She attempted to kill multiple law enforcement officers by shooting at them 50 times. She purposefully killed her children and was able to scheme a plan to dispose of the bodies. She skipped out on parole and was a fugitive for almost 20 fucking years. And let's throw in the fact that she could have killed her third husband. You know, this woman isn't well at all. However, you know, there is this uh, dichotomy that exists between her behavior being quite detached and narcissistic, but also presenting as a caring and loving mother. Many people who were questioned after Calvin and Conrad's murder told police and the press that she was totally normal and seemed like a wonderful mom. Don't forget that she also had taken care of Mrs. Johnson when she was ill. She basically took care of a fucking stranger for three days. For what? Like, did she get a discount on mechanic services like who has time to do that for someone like that's mother Teresa type levels of kindness I don't know the the balance of displaying this caring and nurturing behavior along with being able to plan out and execute the violent and brutal murders of your young children shows a severe imbalance in your brain I'm obviously not a doctor but I do think that her behavior and cognition seemed to be out of the ordinary during and leading up to the murders. And I think she, she could have used some serious intervention and help. To me, Annie Williams seemed to be yet another classic case of a crack in 1950s society that was ignored. She was told, get married, have babies, be a subservient wife to your crackhead, plane-flying husband. It's great. But it turns out it wasn't. And I think she resented the life she was, you know, kind of forced to maybe live. 
I think she abused the second all pills to cope with her life and in the end became completely detached. Imagine if she could have afforded to go to business school. Imagine if her father hadn't died when she was at such a young age. Imagine if she didn't have to live through World War II. Imagine if society didn't tell her she had to have a certain life to feel fulfilled. Things could have ended totally different for everyone. However, many other women who grew up during World War II had their fathers die when they were young and weren't afforded secondary education opportunities and were pressured to get married young and start a family. And you know what? They didn't end up chopping up their fucking children and attempting to escape the world for the remainder of their lives. Fuck you, Annie Williams. I'm certain that she needed help, and I'm certain that she was probably a sociopath, but I think that she was just an entitled bitch that saw no way out of her pathetic existence. Anyways, that's really all I have for you this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Depending on if I can get a certain phone interview done next week, I'm going to try and release an episode that I've been researching and writing since March. It is a very personal case and I am going to do my best to get it finished. So fingers crossed it will be out soon, but if I can't, then I have a backup episode lined up as well. So regardless, I will be back at some point with more Texas true crime. And if anyone is listening, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.